their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maude. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. You are tuned into Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Ksenia Yarosh. Today on the show, we're going to explore what happens when an actress who's the girl next door grows up and takes on darker, grittier, and sexier roles. Is it a transformation we're comfortable with? Or were some women born to play good while others were born to play bad? And in a story of obsession, is she inevitably a victim of her own lust and desire? To explore this question, we all read In the Cut, an erotic thriller written in 1995 by Susanna Moore, which was then made into a movie in 2003 starring Meg Ryan, Mark Ruffalo, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. With us to wade through the lurid waters of deception and mystery is our dear friend David Archer. Hey guys, nice to be here. Welcome, and thank you for bringing your wonderful self and your wonderful hair (laughs) to Bonnie and Maude. No problem, I never leave home without my hair. (laughs) Um, So before we delve into the story and all these questions, David, will you give us a brief summary of the story of In the Cut? Okay, so In the Cut is a sexual thriller about Franny who teaches English on some level that the three of us will try to unpack later, um, (laughs) who witnesses a sexual act at a bar one night, and when the woman involved in the sexual act ends up dead in her neighborhood, Franny gets kind of pulled into the investigation and becomes obsessed with both the crime and the police officer detective who's investigating it. Yes. So it's a story about obsession. It's a story about sex and desire and lust and murder, all things that are so much fun on the page, usually fun on screen if done well. So we have a lot to discuss about this movie. Um, How did you guys first come to this book? I actually didn't know it was a book until recently when I saw David took some photos of it while reading it. Um, I found, (laughs) because that's what David does. Um, I found the movie, when I was in college, I kind of stumbled onto it. And to be fair, at the time, I loved it. And I thought it was amazing and different. And like, finally, we get to see, quote unquote, you know, smart woman who also enjoys sex. And I thought it was really novel. It was before I had really seen many noir films. Um, I haven't seen it in a while. So watching it with you guys today was a slightly different experience. So this movie came out in 2003, right? And this was sort of Meg Ryan's first foray into darker, sexier roles. She famously shows her breasts in the movie, which is an exciting thing for some people and um i don't know if it I mean, the concept <laughs> is I'm exciting <laughs> but i i don't know if like the actualization of meg ryan's tits did anything i think the fact that she masturbates on screen is maybe more novel than even seeing her breasts right the movie is widely thought of as having been panned across the board when it came out but it actually received mixed reviews that ran the gamut um i wish i had names in front of me but some reviewers were really taken by the overall effect of the film and also by meg ryan's performance um 
It might have been Jean Siskel who said that she was just utterly fascinating and actually saved the proceedings. But other reviewers couldn't quite get, they didn't buy it, or at the very least couldn't wrap their heads around Meg Ryan playing this part. And some of the larger complaints did come from the movie maybe just not working at all, so not all of the blame fell on Meg Ryan. But um, what I was interested in, I hadn't, I hadn't encountered the film actually before, encountered meaning viewed, but I was curious to finally watch it and try to figure out whether, I mean, was this bad ink a knee-jerk reaction to, a, you know, America's sweetheart stepping outside of her, what we know, her our comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it actually just a really lousy performance? It, it sounds like the critics who liked it and the critics who hated it, like, they basically had the same reasoning, that it was different. Like, the first time I watched it, I thought it was really interesting because previous to that I'd really only known Meg from Sleepless in Seattle and uh, you've got male roles like that where she was giggly and bubbly and and blonde very blonde Um, so it was strange for me to see her as a brunette with long flat hair (laughs) the hair is just god awful I swear to god I we talked about this a little bit while watching the movie. Um, Ksenia I didn't hate it. the hair, but it's so obviously just the lousiest wig that they could find to slap on a pretty blonde woman to make her a little rougher and living in a crummy New York apartment and getting into all of the bad business. Mm-hmm. Well, she's more urban this way. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, her whole color palette, too, was like browns and greens and just sort of drab. She wore a lot of see-through, like tan-colored tank tops. Mm-hmm. It left nothing to the imagination. <laughs> the colors in this movie were interesting. I, again, when I saw it originally, I, I enjoyed how it has this sort of almost Polaroid brightness to it. Um, but watching it now, the color, the messages that the color sent were so obvious. Like her half-sister or friend (laughs) jennifer jason lee shows up in the novel in the cut um the character pauline is just the heroine's friend but in the film she we find out for sure that pauline is her half-sister but at first it's not exactly clear um and even at one point, Franny says to a cop, well, I'm going to my friends. I'm half-sisters. And it's like, what? Anyway. And Pauline is supposed to be this foil to Franny. I mean, Pauline is vivacious, like, sexy, very, like, sexually charged friend who's sort of in charge of her, uh, you know, own lust and desires. She Her apartment is on top of a strip club, which they hang out in and drink all the time. It's like their corner bar. Um, and, like... Pauline, spoiler alert, meets a pretty horrible fate um, when she is she's murdered. Um, disarticulated. Disarticulated, um, which is just one of the many vocabulary words that In the Cut teaches us. Um, but yeah, so she's supposed to be this like foil to Franny's sort of mousy or shyer person who doesn't have different desires, but kind of keeps them all like locked inside her like stringy brown hair. 
And just to finish my thought. Um, oh, oh, right. Your thought. <laughs> I'm sorry. Huh? <laughs> uh, well, her friend or half-sister uh, wears a lot of reds and oranges. And from the start, we're supposed to interpret her as like the more experienced sexual woman. Whereas Franny is, I don't know, at least in the movie, she's just coming to terms with her sexuality. And her palette goes from green-brown to some red eventually and it's just like it, it's also obvious <laughs> right so maybe the motifs that Jane Campion used weren't quite as subtle as we would have liked um so I I think this begs the question the book versus the movie how do we think the adaptation did as an adaptation I think the movie is flat out a failure um the book is a lot about language, and actually I think it has one of the greatest opening sentences in contemporary literature. The book is a first-person narrative, um, and we open with, I don't usually go to a bar with one of my students. It is almost always a mistake, but Cornelius was having trouble with irony. I think that's hilarious, it's very clever, and it really gets at what the rest of the book is about. Um the word irony and the concept of something being ironic, I guess the word ironic and the concept of irony <laughs> does come up in the movie, but in a really weird oblique way. And you only get that it belongs there if you've read the book. And it's the first example that you encounter of the movie kind of selecting these important pieces of information or key things from the book and placing them as marks for the script to hit without really thinking about what they're doing or why they work in the book. Um, so when Meg Ryan's character, Franny, does meet up with Cornelius outside of this bar, he uh, there's this quick exchange, and he huffily asks her, are you trying to be ironic or something? And <laughs> it doesn't actually make any sense in no. the screenplay, mm -hmm. but if you've read the book, it's like, oh, I guess you're like paying lip service to fans of the mm -hmm. book. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of scrambling of lines, and you definitely pointed that out. Like, they take certain phra uh, phrases that Franny might say in the book, and they let Mark Ruffalo say them. Or, yeah, it's it's just using sentences without full context, which, yes, makes this a bad adaptation. <laughs> Yeah, and Eleanor, you brought this up as we were watching it. Um, so Franny in the book is a teacher, and she is in the film as well. Um, but one of her main pieces of business in the book is that she's working on a book of her own, mm -hmm. which is kind of a lexicon of street slang. Right. And one of the reasons why she's interested in developing a relationship with especially the student Cornelius is because he's able to give her an all-access pass into a lot of that language. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the very beginning of the film, again, it's a conversation between Franny and Pauline as they're leaving her apartment Pauline, you don't even see whatever the post-it note is, but Pauline asks Franny, well, what does broccoli mean? And <laughs> Meg Ryan very dourly explains like, oh, well, it has two meanings. Um, you know, um, pubic hair or marijuana, it's a noun. I just, you know, I think it's, I think it's witty. I think it's really witty. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, it's another example of something that's huge in the book and has a lot to do with um, how we're looking at the ideas of obsession and eroticism and it has so much to do with 
Franny's frame of mind, and it's all throwaway in the movie. Yeah, especially because in the book, most... And she clearly is obsessed with all the sexual slang that she can get. I mean, we should read some of it. Yeah. <laughs> we're all... We're both reaching for our books faster than you even know. Okay, so... From the book. And keep in mind, this is from 1995. Well, this one actually isn't used in the movie. Um, Virginia, meaning vagina. Like, what is the example she uses? Is he, it in the book? It is. As in, he penetrated her Virginia with a hammer, which is horrible. Um, yams means legs. Um, <laughs> skins, noun, sex from a female, as in getting some skins from the pretties. Well, I, I can't find the exact page, but I remember um, stand-up blowjob. She says she was using it incorrectly, that it's not, um, what was it, like doing a blowjob while standing up. It's getting a blowjob from a really short girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's uh, gangsters, noun, plural, breasts. Um, the list that I'm looking at is mostly words for gun, but then we go straight into like Hummer. We know what that is. Um, Skins. Taint. This, you know, back when Susanna Moore was writing this book, taint was still styled as T apostrophe A-N apostrophe T. So you know it was cutting edge. (laughs) (laughs) We brought this up to say that this was clearly one of our favorite parts in the book is her obsession with language and clearly Susanna Moore's obsession with language and how well that's used. Um... I think to show both Franny trying to relate with the New York City that she lives in um, and also try to step back and understand it, um, that didn't really come through in the movie at all. Well, that wasn't necessarily my favorite part of the book. What I did enjoy in the book that also wasn't translated into the movie is just how clear-headed she is about sex, um, how... You know, this is, again, an intelligent woman, uh, a professor, essentially, who is trying to dissect her desires and um, what kinds of things turned her on and off. And watching the movie this time around, that is not translated. Like, uh, Meg Ryan walks around and her eyes are dead. She's supposed to have more focus than that. Yeah. Um, we should circle back to the sex stuff quickly because that's the only reason anybody is listening. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, one of the bigger problems with the movie as a whole is this lack of intensity from all of the characters, but most especially Franny. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, the book, more than the movie, is about obsession. And there's actually a line late in the film where Meg Ryan, you know, sexily asks Mark Ruffalo, do you think I'm obsessed with you? And you no, nobody, nobody, word. nobody thinks that you're obsessed with where Mark Ruffalo because from the past that. two hours, you have done nothing to indicate that you're obsessed with him. Um, but yeah, in line with what Ksenia was saying, there's this really kind of exacting intensity mm-hmm. coming from Franny but also all the other characters they're operating on this very psychic level which can't translate to film yeah. which is in the movie the first sex scene that um she has with Mark Ruffalo um he's on the bed uh she takes off her uh, nightgown or dress or whatever and he asks her to take her underwear off <laughs> and she just kind of pouts and says 
Mm-mm. And it's very like little girl, very not sexy. And that that's where the movie lost me. Yeah, I found that, you know, in the book, the sex scenes between Franny and Detective Malloy are so just like primal and like he throws her on the bed and just starts going down on her. And it's very like graphic, but it's also you know, it's like a sexy scene. It's oh, no, well it's written. It's super sexy. Yeah. It's well written, but it's especially sexy because there isn't a second that you think that Franny doesn't know what she's doing. She's right. sophisticated and experienced enough that she's like, yep, I'm having sex with this guy. And she certainly gives herself over to him uh, as a sexual partner, but it's not... It's not She's colored the way control. that Ksenia points out. We're like, no, I'm not taking off my panties. And then it's that same scene where um, Mark Ruffalo kind of like caresses her for a nice long time. And then she lets out this egregiously long sigh <laughs> that isn't even believable as like a sex noise. It's just like... <sighs> okay. Sounds like she's bored almost. And then she's like, okay. Um, I guess not, we're not having quite sex that blase, now. But it's like... Okay, and then they go down on the bed, and it's like, ah, 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 ah. I want fire, I want passion. Exactly. I mean, and in the movie, they, there's just this sense of routine. Like he's sort of like slowly undressing, taking off his belt. She's just like padding over to get a condom and like throw it at him. And there's no, there's none of that like lust and like having to have each other. None of that spark. Um, that there is in the book. It just seems like they've been in a relationship for like, they're like a 20-year-old married couple and they're just like, well, it's date night, you guys. Yeah, Gotta do you know, this. It's not It's not that I don't believe the sex in the movie. It's that to get from, to get from the point where he's like kind of coercing her into it to the mm-hmm. point where they're like doing it kind of dirty because it does get kind of graphic. You almost expect Meg Ryan to like, after fussing about her panties and then having to say, okay, you expect her to want to be like kissed for a good like 25 minutes mm-hmm. before like she lets Mark Ruffalo um, go down on her from behind. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's the first thing he does in the first sex scene. Yeah. Which is yeah. how you know in the cut means business. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about the charm bracelet? That was one of my... Like, that was one of the sh- most shocking differences to me, I think to all of us, between the book and the movie, is Pauline gives Franny this charm bracelet uh, that belonged to her favorite, most interesting aunt because she says it's giving me, it's bringing me bad luck. So she hands it to Franny. And in the book, this bracelet has like a baby carriage, a martini shaker, and a turkey baster. Um, and you open the martini shaker, and there's a baby in there. And Pauline tells Franny how this bracelet was given to the aunt um, after she had an abortion by uh, a boyfriend or by, you know, a past lover, but that this bracelet basically represents a terminated pregnancy. And then the movie. It's a courtship bracelet. And there's a baby carriage and you open the baby carriage and that's where the little baby is. Um, And there's like an ice skate on it, too, I think. And other cutesy trinkets that are not as interesting as the ones in the book. I don't, I don't remember yeah, what but they are. Actually, but what's up with that? Thinking now about that, Ksenia was really noting throughout the film the heavy usage of 
bridal and engagement imagery, which doesn't really exist in the book. So this might be a good opportunity. I feel like maybe the the courtship bracelet plays into that, and it might be a good opportunity to jump in there. I, I think you're right. And, and But before we get to that, because we'll be giving away the majorist plot point um, right now, the biggest difference between the book and the movie is the ending. Um, do any of you guys want to take it or do you want me to? All right. So the ending of the book, in true looking for Mr. Goodbar fashion, um, Franny thinks that she's figured it all out and she suspects, she thinks that she's like landed on the truth and that Detective Malloy, with whom she's been having hot, filthy sex all over town, is actually the killer who, as we referred to earlier, biggest crime of all, killed Pauline. Um And so she runs from her apartment, and she bumps into his partner, who drags her off to a lighthouse, and (laughs) oops, uh, he's actually the killer. And it's a little unclear what exactly is going to happen, but sure enough, he slices and dices, and she's done for. In the book, um... You don't, there is no motive. He just talks about his methodology more, and we hear more about, you know how he cuts and then we get Franny's first person perspective on what it feels like to be cut that way and you know it continues to be this very um focused and incisive almost clinical in a way yeah super clinical um even though as she's dying she her mind floats to poetry she refers to this essay that she had read about the language of dying and how when you're dying you Think of yourself in the third person as you leave your body. And the last line of the book is, I know the poem, she knows the poem. It's very poetic. Well, what's great about that is she almost tricks you. The fact that she dies in the book remains a trick until that very last sentence, because right after she thinks back to that essay, The Language of Dying, your mind goes to the third person. She knocks herself out of it and she says, but I'm not thinking like that. I am thinking in the first person. And so... She really does. She has her wits about her until that very last sentence. But in the movie, same thing. Franny thinks that she's figured it out. She runs from the apartment. She bumps into Detective Rodriguez. They go to a lighthouse. And that's when things start to get a little weird. He uh, fake romances her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Dusty Springfield's The Look of Love starts to play. He proposes to her and gives her an engagement ring on, on the a tip. knife. Yeah, on the tip of a sword. <laughs> a little stiletto dagger. It's like, will you put this ring? Will you marry me? Put the ring on. And I'm like, oh god. Uh, the ring, by the way, which he pulled off of a disarticulated hand that was sitting inside of the lighthouse, right? Uh, oh, I did not catch that. Huh. Hey, that's when he Perhaps. reached into the bag and we sure. were like, is that a hand? He was totally pulling off because the ring was covered Gross. in blood. Yeah. Sloppy um, seconds. Well, and he says, this is what women want, don't they? To be loved, to be kissed. And sort of implying also that, like, don't all women just want to get married? I'm proposing to you. Wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We have to say what happens at the end of the movie. Oh, right. Um you know, she's about to put on the ring and he's being weird. And then you hear a gun go off and you almost think, well, did Mark Ruffalo get out of those handcuffs? Is he here to save the day? But no, Franny had just taken his gun and she ends up taking back the night and kills him and then walks from a lighthouse under the George Washington Bridge to 
If we were going by the book, she would live someplace near Astor Place or Washington Square Park. The geography of New York in this movie makes no sense, but she, like, walks home from the George Washington Bridge in the morning hours, covered in blood, and returns to Mark Ruffalo, who's handcuffed to a pipe in her apartment, sinks into his arms, and then that damn case rasaras on play. And the door closes. <laughs> right, together at last. So the movie has a happy ending. The book has a rarer and much more disturbing the movie ending. has an optimistic ending okay right but um you mentioned earlier Ksenia how detective rodriguez who's also the killer proposes to her as he's about to kill her and that is his calling card as the killer is all of his corpses were found with engagement rings on their fingers um why does the killer propose to his victims and pauline laments that all she wants to do is get married because marriage solves everything it's like in the movie franny i get the sense that she has been eternally single she's this mousy you know middle-aged woman who maybe has had a lot of partners but has never been married um and so there's this illusion that now that she has found this man that she's so drawn to Malloy, like maybe marriage would fix it. I don't know. But like all the marriage message are coming from the men. So I'm so confused. This might factor in some, but um, so it seems like Franny and Pauline have inherited their lots in life, their emotional lots in life or the way that they like romantically and sexually interact with men from their father who, from the story of how we met Franny's mother, we know isn't very seriously committed because he let his current fiance walk away from him so that he could go court this new woman. He proposes to her 30 minutes after meeting her. And um, after Franny relays this story to Pauline, Pauline says, how many times was dad married? And Franny answers four. And Pauline mopes. Oh, that's nice. He never married my mom. And so it kind of seems like the tie that binds these two as sisters, as half-sisters, friends, um, (laughs) half-sisters, is their father and kind of his mistreatment of women. And there's also this anecdote that exists in the book, too, um, but it's used a little bit differently. You know, um, the father is a diplomat, and when Franny is, like, 14, he forgets her in Geneva. He's called back to Washington on business and he just forgets his daughter in Geneva, but covers later saying, well, I just didn't think it would be a problem for you to be alone. Um, So it's, you know, there's this kind of like icy inheritance from men on the women's part, but then Mark Ruffalo as Detective Malloy um, kind of has this great, fascinating at least, monologue and he tells this story about his first time with the chicken lady, who was a woman in his neighbor, a married woman in his neighborhood that he would deliver groceries to. And, you know, basically this very sensual, nurturing older woman taught him how to relate sexually to women, um, which has afforded him this kind of great sexual power and um, efficiency with women, where he knows what they like and he likes to give them what they like and it's because he was taught and so it's kind of not surprising then that later the men are coming in with these kind of stronger messages of marriage and stability um because even 
this might just be part red herring, but a little late in the film, Mark Mark Ruffalo as Malloy um, starts asking for Annie, like, how long, how long would you have to know somebody before you got engaged to them? In hindsight, you can tell that he's actually very seriously asking Franny that question. Yeah, I thought he was proposing to her in the car. And what's strange about all of this is it's not really, there's not really that much of this wedding and engagement stuff in the book. I mean, in the book, she, Franny had been previously married to a photographer and, and lived in London with him and sort of reminisces about their relationship in a somewhat um, wistful way but seems ultimately happy that they're divorced um, but I'm wondering if this engagement motif is used in the movie because it's a movie and it I don't know Hollywood is heavy-handed about wedding and marriage messaging and it's easy and it's iconic and yeah even if there's not a lot of meaning behind it like when even if we don't have strong feelings about marriage or wedding or weddings I, I feel like when I see a white dress or like an engagement ring like something clicks inside me just because we've been seeing these images for so long I mean even like from childhood a princess gets married to a prince and the story ends and things are resolved right and what I liked a lot about the book is that it ended up being so unconventional whereas the movie tries to take all those things the fact that she dies at the end the fact that she is this like sort of sexual being um you know unattached to anybody um and holds a lot of the sexual power in her court and sort of conventionalizes all of that i'm trying to figure out why susanna moore ends up putting Franny through so much hell and ends up killing her at the end. You know, are we supposed to take that as Franny's being punished for having this really overt sexual desire that she acts on? Or do you guys not see it that way? I don't, I don't see it as punishment. I do see it as maybe a message of sex is dangerous. (laughs) There is a lot of like, um, the, the idea of like, men being dangerous to women and how it's frightening but it's also a turn on um the Malloy character in the book is a very I like I don't know the right phrasing for it like very masculine gruff doesn't think about it you know he's no Mark Ruffalo like <laughs> Gruffalo <laughs> <laughs> um He's a little bit of a meathead, like that sort of person. And that's a huge turn on to her because he's not thinking through what they're doing. And that that's what she's desiring at the moment. In terms of her dying in the end, I I don't know. I, I don't find it a judgment. No, I don't think it's judgmental at all. Um, you know, on top of the eroticism and the murder elements of the plot, the novel is, as we were, as we mentioned earlier, is really about obsession too. And I think, you know, there's no judgment here on Susanna Moore's part, um, but Franny kind of reaches the natural end of somebody who has let obsession consume her. Because she already has the very clinical mind. She's already very exacting and focused and, uh, you know, pays attention to what she wants to pay attention to. 
Um, there are some interesting moments where there are some interesting moments where we get to see kind of faults in her very precise logic. Um, like I think it might be after Pauline is murdered, but maybe even earlier, there are some non sequiturs that come in where she's asking very specific questions of Malloy that are fair questions to ask, but they're actually a little inappropriate in the moment. Like she's losing focus of the bigger picture of what's going on around her. And so I think as we get deeper and deeper, as she gets deeper and deeper into her obsession, the blinders become more and more intense. And because she's lost focus, or because, not focus, because she's lost um, her bearings and she's no longer quite sure where she's fixed in the wider world, she has more or less just like dug a path to what happens to her in the end. Um, Whereas if she had maybe pulled herself out a little bit more, um, she could have escaped it or at least sidestepped. Her doom. Her doom. Um, wait, we haven't unpacked the most important part because we also, in your introduction, you promised that we would talk about when good girls go bad. Yes. Um, but so a key piece of information is that basically from the time that In the Cut was published, Nicole Kidman was working with Jane Campion to produce it. And the original idea was that Nicole Kidman was going to star as Franny. But by the time the film finally made it into production... Um, I believe the lore is that that's when she was going through her divorce with Tom Cruise. So she had to take time off from acting, take care of the kids, etc. Um, also, she might have been fresh off of her Oscar. So who cares? Uh, maybe she actually just got too good for the project. Um, but so Meg Ryan had to step in instead. Would the film have been much different if Nicole Kidman had been the star and what is Meg Ryan doing for us and what is Meg Ryan doing for her career? I think Nicole Kidman would have been way more intense and with the kind of intensity that the book Franny needs to become real on the screen. But another thing that you had mentioned earlier is that Meg Ryan was originally up for the role in To Die For that ended up going to Nicole Kidman. Right. Yeah. She uh, Meg Ryan was Gus Van Sant's first choice for uh, Suzanne Stone in To Die For, which is something I learned. I only saw To Die For for the first time a few months ago, um, which <laughs> shame on me. But watching it, I was absolutely delighted by Nicole Kidman, but also thought to myself a little bit, like, she was doing kind of a nasty Meg Ryan impression. Like, she was, you know, this sociopath character was trying so hard to be America's, you know, girl next door, America's sweetheart. Um, and Meg Ryan, especially at that time, would have been the obvious, you know, kind of template for that. Um, but so I thought that while watching the movie and then later while reading up on it, saw that Meg Ryan was actually the first choice and I almost have to wonder if Gus Van Sant directed Nicole Kidman to be doing a Meg Ryan impression well back to the movie do you think you would have enjoyed the movie if you hadn't read the book no I think the movie would have been a cipher to me if I hadn't read the book Um, the book is kind of this Rosetta Stone for a lot of inexplicable things that are thrown into the movie Um, although I still don't know if I would have liked it, but if I only saw the film, maybe I would give it the benefit of the doubt because it's Jane Campion 
And it's like, oh, she's she's artistic, so I guess it's just like a really artistic movie. Except it's not. <laughs> um, I mean, ultimately, if the movie is a failure, we suggest you read the book in the cut by Susanna Moore. Um, it's only 180 pages. You can fly through it because it's very gripping and, you know, it throws you right in and you're, you're along for the ride. Wow. I sound so cliche right now. Gripping is definitely the right word. It's super sexy. It's also super sexy. In a time when people seem to be struggling to find good erotica, I think this is the way to go. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on Bonnie and Maude to discuss these uh, lurid affairs with us. Thanks for tolerating, ma'am. <laughs> um, this has been Bonnie and Maude. I'm your host, Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And you can find Bonnie and Maude online at bonnieandmaude.com. We've got a Tumblr. Um, we've got Twitter. Bonnie and Maude is our handle. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes by searching for Bonnie and Maude. Thanks for listening and uh, stay in the cut. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't make my joke about uh, Meg's weird walk. Oh, yeah. She's been getting it in the cut too hard. Pick it up!